Greetings, Learn to Love listeners. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you all know about our upcoming Mindful Self-Compassion course with the amazing Megan Prager of Mindful Labs. Mindful Self-Compassion is an incredible eight-week course that will start on Wednesday, January 5th. 2022. It's a program that combines the skills of mindfulness and self-compassion to enhance your resilience and overall well-being. Originally developed by the incredible kindness and compassion researchers Dr. Kristen Neff and Dr. Christopher Germer, the Mindful Self-Compassion program is based on empirically validated research and teaches you the skills for practicing self-compassion in your daily life, enabling you to respond to difficult moments, challenging emotions, and relationship issues with kindness and authenticity. For those of you who are longtime listeners of the podcast, you know that we are all about creating wonderful content for free with no ads whatsoever. The way that you can support the show and bring more love and compassion into your life is by signing up for this amazing upcoming program by going to our website at the Heart Center. That's the-heart-center.com and click on the Mindful Self-Compassion course. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible divorce coach, Karen McMahon. Hello, Karen, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Very excited to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about recovering from divorce. And for those that don't know, Karen McMahon is a certified relationship and divorce coach and the founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. Karen has spent the last decade helping thousands of men and women navigate the emotional and practical difficulties of relationships, breakups, and divorce. She now leads a team of divorce coaches in supporting men and women around the world to become calm, clear, and confident as they navigate divorce. Karen is the host of her own podcast called Journey Beyond Divorce. She is the co-creator of Journey Beyond Divorce exclusive 12-step divorce recovery program, and she is the co-author of the ebook Stepping Out of Chaos, Turning Pain to Possibility. How are you today, Karen? I'm great. So thanks so much for coming on. I have so many questions about this challenging topic of divorce, which some of our listeners might even be going through right now. And you've been working in the realm of divorce for a long time. So I'm just curious your thoughts on marriage as an institution as a whole and just being a bit tongue in cheek here. But do you think that marriage is unrealistic and just a failure in modern times? Wow. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that marriage is a brilliant institution. And when approached consciously and with a certain amount of emotional health and intelligence, it's it's a companionship that lasts a lifetime and grows 
deeper and more beautiful and individuals in it can really grow with the love and support of their partner. And when it's not healthy, uh, it can, it can get really difficult. So our topic for today is overcoming divorce, but I'm curious your thoughts on the preventative medicine. So we don't necessarily have to go down this route necessarily. So when you do meet all these people who are going through the divorce or who have recovered from it and you are sort of prepping them to be in a new relationship, what are to you some of the most foundational principles that make and help our marriages last? Yeah, that is just such a great question. And at The top of the list is communication and uh, healthy communication. And one can think that they're a good communicator because they speak well. And so two ears, one mouth. It's really important that we spend a lot of time listening and listening, not while we're creating our rebut, but truly listening with curiosity so that, especially when you're triggered, right? When, when things get difficult, we each come with our baggage, some larger than others. And so that listening for what the other person is feeling or needing is a vital piece. And when you have communication that's safe, and what I mean by that is there, there's no name calling, no blaming, no accusing, uh, no verbal or emotional attacking, uh, and you can feel safe, then you can be vulnerable. And that's the idea. This is your person, right? This is your man, this is your woman. And so you want to be able to be emotionally naked and vulnerable in front of that person. And so, so that's a, that's a key. And I would say the other key that we talk so much to our clients about is we all get triggered. I mean, we're human. We've, we've been raised with, uh, our beliefs, with our wounds. And so when there are rubs in the relationship, there's an opportunity to stop focusing on your partner or your spouse's part in the rub and to completely keep the focus on yourself. And that's a huge part of our 12 step program and what we coach around because, When I'm triggered, that means that there's something going on. I either have a a wound or a shortcoming. And when my partner triggers me, there's an opportunity for me to step back, uh, notice what that is, understand why I got triggered, how I got triggered, and do that personal work. And, And in my humble opinion, intimate relationships with partners or marriages give us they are the most brilliant opportunity to spend the rest of our lives healing and refining ourselves to be our best self with a partner who's loving and supportive. I love that. Marriages are the most brilliant opportunity for us to be our best selves. And I love your emphasis on the personal development aspect. I do often think of relationships as mirrors. They show us where our wounds are. The triggers are actually signposts to what needs help, what needs growth, what needs nurturing. And fortunately, we're hopefully in a container that supports that mutual growth. Right. And when you're not, that vulnerability could could end up hurting you a lot. And those are the people who usually end up knocking on our door. But I would like to say one more thing about this, because I think that as I've done this work, one of the most powerful realizations that I had through a lot of books that I read and people that I I worked with is our first intimate relationship is our family of origin. And so, so many 
can look and say, well, what was the dynamic between my parents? What was the dynamic between me and my parents, between me and my siblings? And then you look at your partner and what their dynamic was. And when you run into problems, there is this blueprinting, this subconscious uh, script that we all follow. And so, so often somebody who's parent cheated ends up with somebody who cheats or they cheat themselves. Somebody who was raised with a, a parent with a mental illness or a parent who's codependent finds themselves either being or marrying or partnering with that same behavior. And the opportunity is when we notice and we keep the focus on ourselves because we can't change or control anyone else that's the healing and the refining that goes on. And what I like to say is when there are problems and you're behaving your way and he or she's behaving their way, nobody's licking it off the grass. This is coming from someplace. This is coming from your 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 childhood, your family of origin, and what you learned that you may not even realize you learned. Absolutely. I don't think many people realize just how much that almost, you know, pre-conscious or unconscious conditioning we had as children continue to affect our adult romantic relationships. And I'm curious a little bit about your own relationship to marriage and divorce, because when I was thinking about you pointing out the conditioning that we have and how we need to observe and recognize the patterns that we have, I was watching one of your own videos on divorce and you referred to yourself as a recovering codependent because <laughs> it was an, it was a video on um, codependency. And I want to Go a little bit more into that in terms of how have you found your own path? Because you went through your own divorce, right? Yes. Yes. And then how was your path of recovery? And like, where would you say you are now? Great questions. So um, I am an admitted recovering codependent people pleaser perfectionist. I often find that those come, that's like a triplet that when one has one, many have the other two as well. And so I was raised in a household with um, a mom who had three kids in diapers by the time she was 25 and a dad who was a police officer and an Irish man who enjoyed to drink. And dad was passive aggressive and mom was a codependent rageaholic. And when I had kids who were in diapers, I one day I just looked in the mirror and there was this codependent rageaholic. And I picked up the phone and called a therapist the next day and said, I don't like myself. And as much as I may be unhappy with my spouse, like I've got some problems to deal with. And uh, as hard as I tried, we tried, it didn't work. And the beginning of my recovery was actually going into uh, going into Alcoholics Anonymous, not Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Al-Anon rather, and um, Adult Children of Alcoholics, those two different programs uh, and the 12 steps. And that was a game changer for me because it really requires you to notice and acknowledge that you don't have control and to keep the focus on yourself and to do your own work. One of the many, and I always throw their their slogans around like, you know, keep your side of the street clean, get off of his side of the street or her side of the street. That's not your business. And you have no control there, sweep yours. Um, and so I spent many years really working on 
uh, a lot of stuff that came out of my family of origin. And I, I still do. I think that uh, one client who was frustrated and exhausted with the work said, when is this done? And I said, when you're six feet under. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we all have work to do. We're always going to have work to do. And the beautiful thing is when that kind of personal inner work is just making you a better person and a more healed person, who doesn't want to do it? It's it's all good. I appreciate you sharing your story and it ties into what we we're saying earlier about those early patterns is that it's very true that a huge risk factor for something like domestic abuse, for example, is if you grew up in a home with domestic abuse and the same goes for things like alcoholism or anxiety. And I think a challenge for a lot of people when they sort of gain this level of awareness of these patterns that they have in themselves is perhaps a feeling of helplessness or hopelessness or even brokenness that they feel broken because they came from a broken home, especially when going through something as challenging as divorce. And maybe you do, you know, listen to a podcast and they say, well, focus on yourself. Think about what you have been doing wrong. It can be easy to get tied up in feelings of self, self-blame and feeling like a failure. Very good point. How can we sort of recognize our own patterns without, you know, feeling bad about ourselves or dropping into levels of low self-esteem. Yeah. And, and so many people do. So you're either blaming and accusing the other, or you're beating the heck out of yourself. And, uh, and what our, our approach with our clients is inviting them to replace self-condemnation with self-compassion. So we can all criticize ourselves. And I do a lot of work around emotional energy. And so when you're critical of others, when you're critical of yourself, you're in a lot of conflict energy. And when you feel the victim of and you feel hopeless, you're in a lot of victim energy. And those two emotional energies, when you're lethargic, when you're filled with conflict or frustration or anger or resentment, none of us feel good when we feel that way. It's very... um, it's very life depleting. It's a catabolic energy, which means life depleting. A cancer cell is life depleting. And so when we're trying to get better and we're like, what the hell is my problem? And I'm such an idiot. And you're pushing yourself down and you're pulling yourself further away from where you want to be. And when you can forgive yourself and find compassion right? I didn't lick it off the grass. I grew up with this. I'm old enough to start doing things better. And rather than pick up the bat and beat myself up, let me congratulate myself for knowing that I can do things better. And today's the beginning of the new me. And so you come at everything with kindness and gentleness and self-compassion towards yourself. And if you're in a difficult situation, the best you can toward the other person, because conflict pulls us away from where we want to be. It doesn't draw us closer to it. I do think self-compassion is so important. And it's also what's just so missing in today's world. And this kind of reminds me of some of the things I was reading about in your book. And you write about three essential practices to navigate the storm of divorce. You write about awareness, acceptance, and action. So we already talked a little bit about that awareness aspect of looking at our roles, looking at our conditioning. Let's talk more about the second step of acceptance. Yeah. And so 
the opposite of acceptance is resistance. And if you're listening and you're frustrated with, let's say for a moment, you're frustrated with your partner or your spouse, one of the things I hear the most is, I can't believe she did blank. And then the question is, has she ever done it before? Well, yeah, we're married 20 years. She does it all the time. (laughs) That's resistance. And so why can't you believe it? Because I want her to be showing up differently. Okay. So acceptance is, I know she shows up this way. She's shown up this way for 20 years. I can expect her to show up this way. And if I can expect it, can I accept it? Now, when I accept it, then what I get to do is have a plan B. I get to approach it differently because I'm no longer in denial that it's going to happen. And so that's with the other person. So acceptance is something you could be in resistance that your relationship has been not working for many years. I have clients who, when I ask them, you know, when was the last time the two of you were truly happy together? And you hear a decade, a decade and a half ago, they've been living in resistance. They've wanted it to be different. They say, you know, it's not horrible. You know, everyone has their problems. Acceptance is when we really see something through the awareness and and with ourselves too, and then say, okay, if I want to change myself, even the first thing I have to do is love and accept myself, right? That's we're back to self-compassion. I'm going to accept that this is where I am and this isn't where I have to stay. And so acceptance is this powerful way of kind of lubricating our way forward, like greasing that path so that it's more smooth and streamlined. And resistance, on the other hand, does quite the opposite. It's like putting the brakes on and just sitting in the friction and the turmoil and the stress and the tension and just wishing it wasn't, uh, but nothing changes. And so acceptance is that opportunity to say, okay, if I can accept what is, then I start having choices. If I'm not accepting it, I can't see the choices because I'm not even accepting it. But once I accept it, then I can say, okay, what are my options? If it's a marriage, we could go to marriage counseling. We could take a break. We could, we could have a, a weekly, you know, date night with like whatever the problem is. Like you have options, but in resistance, you can't see those options. You can't see those choices. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you mention how when people are going through the divorce, it's often many years that have led up to the singular event. And this is my experience too, is oftentimes I feel like the act of divorce is a wake-up call to the previous 5, 10, 15 years that led up to the event. It almost reminds me of the legend of the frog in boiling water, where if you toss the frog in, of course, it'll jump out. But if you slowly heat it up, And I don't even know if this is like true, but, you know, it's just a good metaphor for you don't often notice gradual change. Yes. And the perfect, perfect metaphor, that's exactly what it is. And so you get married and there's chemistry and everything's new and exciting. And then there's perhaps babies and then everyone's focusing on the babies. And then there's not a lot of time and there might be money issues and there might be, you know, issues in the bedroom because everyone's exhausted. And then, and then... And then there's either safe space and communication or not. And then there's not communication, there's not vulnerability, there's blame, there's accusation. 
there's a coldness, there's a loneliness, there's an emptiness and, and everyone soldiers on for the kids. And I will say that research has proven that children are much worse off in a house with stress, tension, and conflict than in two households that are peaceful. And if you're staying for the children, take a look at what you're teaching them about what intimate love should look like. Back to the beginning of our conversation, because that's their blueprint and that's what they're going to go and experience. And for me, I think one of the most exciting things is talking to our clients about breaking generational chains of unhealthy relationships. It is. I love that. Breaking a general chains, generational chains of dysfunctional relationships. And I want to go a little bit deeper into the second step, into this practice of acceptance that you mentioned, because in your book, you do write about the difference between temporary and continued denial. And you write that temporary denial is an effective initial response to severely disruptive events, while continued denial is not. I was surprised at reading that because I think of denial as just, you know, blanket self-delusion. But when is denial useful? And when we do begin to practice that acceptance, like what does that emotional shift look like? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So a breakup or a divorce, either one, is a death. It's, it's the end of something that you were hoping was going to live on. And so the very first stage and grief doesn't, is not a linear process, but the first stage is denial. So if my spouse comes home and says, you know what, I just haven't been happy for a really long time. And I hired a divorce attorney. Psychologically, I am not handling that. Like my mind goes numb and denial is this healthy boundary that psychologically protects us while over the course of time, reality is dosed in. So many of my clients will, I coach them when they're thinking about getting divorced and, and if they've, we've tried to mend and it didn't work, then how do I communicate this to my spouse? And one of the things I say to them is you want to keep it very short because they're not going to hear anything you say after the D word. And you're not going to say it just once. You're probably going to say it like 10, 15, 20, 40 times, depending on, you know, who you're dealing with. And so in those early stages, it's important to understand. And if you're listening and you're breaking up with, or you're in the beginning of divorce, a lot of people take it as he or she is being difficult or manipulative. But the truth is the stages, the five stages of grief, there are seven, but I'll mention the five there, you know, that's, those are the popular um, paradigms is um, denial, depression, anger, bargaining, and acceptance. And so it's not linear. It's more like a pinball machine or, you know, it's, you, you bounce all over the place. If you're in denial months and months after And I've worked with people post-divorce who were in denial for years. Uh, That's unhealthy. And so denial, a healthy denial is a protection while reality is dosed to you so that you can begin to absorb this huge and dramatic change in your life. If it goes on extensively and, you know, that's going to be a little different for everyone, but months down the road, if you're still like, this isn't happening, 
that's, that's not healthy. And you want to see, and if you're in a breakup, both for yourself and your partner, you should see these different waves of depression, anger, bargaining. Bargaining might sound like you're just having a middle, mid-age crisis. You know, it's not you, it's your mother who hates me. You must be having an affair. Like, like there, there's, it's, it's gotta be something else. Like that's part of the bargaining is just like, I want to figure out what it is. It can't be this. And then the last stage is acceptance. And acceptance is something that the first time, if it's divorce, the first time you're having a conversation and your spouse engages in the divorce conversation, they've touched acceptance for the first time. They, you may not hear that again for weeks, but it's a, it's a sign that they're moving in the right direction. And so acceptance happens on a mental level. Ultimately, it happens on a heart level. And it's, it's a journey into itself acceptance. And then the acceptance that the divorce is happening. And then the acceptance of that journey through divorce, which is difficult. And then the acceptance of being divorced and being a single person or a single parent post divorce. And what is my life now? And that takes its own level of acceptance. So it's very multi tiered. I absolutely agree. I think it can help many people going through divorce, recognizing it to be a loss, to be a death of so much, right? You're losing the relationship. You're also losing the future that you had planned out in your head. And that same grief process can really help somebody go through it. And I also it's love... It's so multidimensional. So when 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 we talk about loss, it's it's not just the spouse. It's not just if there are children, you no longer are going to have the same amount of time with your kids. Uh, you're no longer going to have the same finances. Those finances are split. There are people in your social circle who are going to choose one or the other person. You may love your in-laws and your in-laws aren't going to be talking to you anymore, maybe. And so it's very, very uh, multidimensional loss, uh, divorce. And the the old saying is that divorce is the second most devastating thing. But you talk to people going through divorce and they're like, you know, if you lose your spouse they're gone and everything else is much else is the same. So I still have friends. I still have my, but when you divorce, there is just loss on many, many levels. Now that's an interesting perspective because it's, you'd think that like divorce would be a, like a good thing, right? When you say, oh, you're losing your spouse and it's like, it's, that's true, but you've, you've chosen to, to lose this person. <laughs> like in theory, well, it's something that you've desired just as you might like. Only one person chose. Uh, it's, okay. it's, you see what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I, I initiated, my ex-husband fought me for three and a half years. He was absolutely, you know, it was, and, and so what happens is somebody's initiating and trust me, there is no, there's nothing easy. And especially with children, there is nothing easy about making that decision. That is an excruciating, heartbreaking decision. We do a whole program on should I stay or should I go? It's like the biggest decision you're going to make. But if you're the person who's being told it's over, like it or not, it's over. And you're not losing the person forever. In fact, especially if you really don't get along, you may be co-parenting with them for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. So, but it, yeah, it's, uh, it's very jarring. It's, it's very jarring for the person who, uh, didn't initiate. And the person who does initiate is often much further along the grieving process, right? So 
if you're initiating, you've been unhappy for a while, you might've been talking to your therapist, you may have gone through a couple of marriage counselors, you may have already spoken to some divorce professionals to see what this landscape even looks like. And then you tell your spouse, now you could be at that for six months, five years, and, and your spouse is just like, yeah, you know, it, she'll get over it. He'll get over it. And then they are in a very different starting place than you when you finally make that decision. So it's, it's pretty complicated. So earlier I, I thought it was really interesting how you almost defined a healthy level of denial as a sort of psychological boundary so that this really big disruptive change in reality is slowly dosed so you can slowly kind of handle and accommodate the change throughout your life over a slightly longer period of time. And I want to go deeper into those boundaries that we might want to set, need to set, because you do write and talk about the importance of setting and upholding boundaries. And I'm almost connecting this earlier when you mentioned that you yourself are a recovering people-pleasing perfectionist. <laughs> and <laughs> and yep. to me, that's one of the biggest, I feel like it's, that's one of the biggest things that's hard to start. You know, if someone is like, hey, can you help me with this? And then the the people-pleasing part of you is like, absolutely, I'm, you know, I can sacrifice everything in my life to do this. But then learning about, okay, what boundaries do I need to set? So what are some examples of boundaries that you find are helpful to set during divorce? And how does your own path connect to this idea? Yeah. Many of us grow up in households that are devoid of boundaries. And so how would you know, right? How do you know what a boundary is? How do you describe it? How do you, how do you set it? How do you uphold it? How do you defend it? Like if you grew up, I grew up in a pretty boundaryless family. So I didn't know. And healthy relationships require healthy boundaries. I I would challenge anyone to show me a really healthy family that has no boundaries. And so a boundary for a people pleaser is, I'm sorry, I can't, but I wish you the best of luck. Uh, <laughs> and what happens when we don't set the boundary and we're a people pleaser or a codependent, we abandon ourselves and our needs to take care of somebody else. And I, I want that to sink in because when you abandon yourself, you will manifest and bring into your life other people who abandon you. And it's almost counterintuitive. It's, it, it's like, if I'm a codependent and I'm out there and I'm doing everything for everyone and I'm not even on my list and I'm a giver, 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 how could everyone not love me? And yet you're not valuing yourself. You're not honoring, you're not committing to yourself. And so you attract people who won't commit to you. They'll love you for what you do until you stop doing it. And so a boundary is saying no. A boundary is in communication. Boundaries can be uh, choosing when to respond. Uh, so you might be in a relationship with someone who's jealous, who's texting or calling you all the time. And even if you're in the middle of your workday, they're expecting you to stop what you're doing and, and respond to them. It only takes 10 seconds. But the boundary is during the workday, unless it's urgent, I won't be looking at or responding to your emails. And a boundary is 
you keep accusing me of sleeping with people. There's no facts. And I am no longer going to defend myself. This is your issue that you need to work on. And I'd love to see you do that. But no, I won't be defending myself anymore. Boundaries can be um, on the phone. If you have somebody who is uh, being hostile or intimidating or abusive, you can say, I, um, I'm not going to listen to this. Why don't we reconnect when you've calmed down and I'm hanging the phone up now and it doesn't have to be nasty or hateful or anything like that. It just has to be firm. And so boundaries are, what do I need to feel safe and to honor myself? And so we go back to the awareness acceptance. Do I even know what I need? One of the big questions I ask my clients when they're telling whatever the story is about what's going on is, what do you need? And it stops them all in their tracks. It's like, nobody ever asks me that. So ask yourself that, what do I need? And the other thing that that comes into play, especially with codependence and people pleases, is if you've been giving yourself up for everybody else, your, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your family of origin, and you stop, they are going to tell you how unbelievably selfish you are. Even if you're just being self-loving because you've trained them to expect you to give yourself up. So it's not all their fault, right? Like we train. If I train you to believe that, you know, you say jump and I'm going to say how high. And then one day I say, no, I don't want to jump today. You can be, what are you kidding me? Why wouldn't you jump? You always jump for me. You're so selfish. And that is salt in the wound to a people pleaser or a codependent. It's like the worst thing you want to hear. And that's all the inner work to do. It's like, okay, how was I created this way? You know, my, let me look at my family of origin. What are, where are the places where I abandoned myself and I, I, not on the list at all, or I'm low on the list and I do for everyone else. And then a lot of times I'll do for everyone else. And then I get to be bitter and resentful because other people don't do what I do, but other people aren't you. And maybe what you're doing isn't so healthy anyway. And so that's all that awareness work to do. And then setting boundaries is scary and if you don't have any experience with it, when someone argues with you, it's hard to articulate why it's a good thing. It's like, you don't have the, you don't have the language. You don't have, you don't have the experience. And, and so boundaries are brilliant. There's not a relationship out there that doesn't need healthy boundaries and, and communicating about them and agreement about them. A boundary with a couple could be, I, I'm an introvert. I need my space. And you're this extrovert and you always have friends over and that's, that's great, but this is what I need. And so I'm asking for it and I want us to agree to, you know, what that looks like. Yeah. It's so important. You meant, you started out by saying healthy relationships require healthy boundaries. And that applies of course, to the relationship we have with ourselves as if, if we do want to cultivate a loving, compassionate relationship to ourselves, that does require setting up boundaries sometimes with others, so that we can give ourselves that attention that we deserve and need. And in fact, the one thing I didn't talk about that I usually do is on a very fundamental level, most people will say, Zach, you make me feel insecure. The truth is, and, and that's a broken boundary because nobody can make you feel something. And you can have two people experiencing the same, let me give you an example, the same 
a short-tempered boss. So you have two people sitting in an office. The boss just has a short temper and a nasty mouth and something went awry in the job or the project and he or she comes out and, you know, they begin to berate. And the person who grew up in a household with verbal or emotional abuse is they shrink, they're scared, they're devastated, they're hurt. And the other person who grew up in the healthy household sees it differently and might even wait a little while and then go into the boss and say, look, it sounds like this is like really triggering for you. I just need you to know that you can't talk to me that way. Like I won't be in a situation where I'm spoken to that way. And so can we sit down and come up with a better way of handling these things? Exact same thing, but very different reactions. And so somebody doesn't make you feel, somebody behaves. And as a result, you feel. And so that what sounds like just a play on words is, is huge because if I tell, if I believe that you and everyone else in the world can make me feel, then I'm a puppet to the world. Like, where is my agency? And so when I can say, wow, if somebody triggers me and I feel something, I can let them go for the moment. And I can do that work of why did that scare me? Why did that infuriate me? Why did that trigger me in a way that I shut down, whatever the case may be? And that's me. That's that's my reaction. And the other person has their part. Screaming and yelling is not acceptable, but they didn't make you feel. You feel what you feel and that's your work to do. And in relationship, that's huge when both people can own, or you made me do it. If you didn't do X, I wouldn't have done Y. Sorry. Doesn't (laughs) work that way. Nobody puts a gun to your head. Nobody makes you do or makes you feel. And that, if you just take that piece away and work with that, it could be a game changer in a relationship. Yeah. I resonate so much with what you're saying. It even reminds me of some of my own experiences in relationships is growing up. Like I feel very lucky that there was never any yelling in my house. Like even if someone was in another room and I was like, mom, and she'd be like, if you want to talk to me, walk to me, (laughs) we can talk in a normal voice. So I remember being in a relationship with somebody who grew up in a household where people yelled at each other all the time. And then I remember her yelling at me and I was like, I understand this is a normal way for you to communicate, but I don't want to be in a partnership where there's yelling all the time. And that for me was just a really healthy boundary to set. Yes. Yes. So I want to combine some of the things you're saying with what you mentioned earlier, because you mentioned the challenge of co-parenting after divorce. And I think that this can sometimes fly in the face of boundaries that we want to set. Um, Oftentimes we go through divorce and we don't want to see the person ever again, but then we have to co-parent and deal with mutual responsibilities. Um, Even recently, I had a friend who has gone through a divorce and and it's been quite challenging for her to navigate things around COVID because her ex-husband, in her opinion, is quite careless uh, about the the virus and about responses to to the pandemic. And obviously, you know, somebody's behavior around a contagious disease can greatly affect you and they share a child, right? So it's, it's really challenging. So... How can we best find peace, best set up appropriate boundaries with a spouse that's relatively challenging, but needs to be in our lives for certain reasons? You know, we have to sell the house. We have to take care of the kids. Yeah. And I think that it's a really important topic. There's your garden variety divorce where you'll disagree on some things, but 
you're able to partner because you both love the children and you're child centered and, and not that there won't be rubs, but there, there's a, a certain level of love for the kids that allows for decent communication, compromise, flexibility. We work a lot with high conflict situations where you might be dealing with somebody who has an anger management issue, has a personality disorder, has an addiction, is either diagnosed as a narcissist or at least has those tendencies because of alcoholism, addiction, something like that. And that that's where you have people who are like, God, I just, I never want to see or talk to you again, but we've got these little people. And, and that often requires what we call parallel parenting instead of co-parenting. And so in a co-parenting situation, you might be able to sit down with your ex and say, okay, Billy cut school. And can we agree on what the consequences and can it be equal in both houses? Or, you know, when there are test days coming up, can we agree that, you know, this is what the kids have to do? You're never going to do that in an apparent co-parenting relationship with a high conflict personality. And in those cases, and that was my situation. And so I, I feel very strongly that you can live in peace and joy, even though you've divorced a high conflict personality. And it means that you have to get super clear on the fact that you are never changing that person. You wouldn't be divorced if you could. So let it go. Just really, really let it go. And the COVID situation has been really interesting for us. I'm just going to put that aside because now we're talking about the health and wellness of our kids. Most situations like you know, what do you mean they're having Fruit Loops for dinner or staying up until one o'clock in the morning playing Game Boy or whatever? You have no control over what happens in the other household. And so he or she has their rules in their household and you have yours in your household. And it's, and you sit the kids down and you say, look, there are different rules and your children are going to be dealing with teachers with different rules, coaches with different rules, bosses with different rules. This is not a horrible thing for them to come to terms with. Children are very smart. They'll play one parent off of the other. So often the one parent wants to call the other parent to tell them why they're wrong and what they should <laughs> do differently. And so the solution to that because if you're dealing with a high conflict personality, you never want to advise them or admonish them and get a load of this. You never want to apologize to them because they twist it and use it. And that comes from the High Conflict Institute, if you want to check that out. But what you do is you talk to your children and you you set boundaries with your children and you let them know in your household, these are the rules. And they might be like, you know, mommy says... Okay. And when you're with mommy, even though I disagree, that's mommy's right to have those rules. But when you're with me, these are the rules. And you may feel like that's great. I get to be the heavy. I get to be, you know, the hard ass. But at the end of the day, if you're sitting your children down and you're communicating with love and you're safe and you're not bashing the other parent of which your children are 50%, you will become the safe parent that they come to and they talk to. So even if it turns out that in the beginning, daddy is daddy Disney and all play and you're the, you're the rule maker, there are other things that come with that high conflict personality that will be challenging for your children and they're not going to talk to you 
unless you're safe. And if you're bashing their other parent, they're not going to have anybody to talk to. So bite your tongue. If you need something to change, sit your kids down. And I'm talking like my kids were in grade school, like six, seven up to when they left the house. It was never about dad being wrong. It was always about what is the life lesson that I can teach them, that I can pour into them. So their emotional intelligence, their communication, their understanding of themselves is grown through this time. Is it hard? Yeah. Is it heartbreaking? Absolutely at times. But the, the, the end result is you will raise really healthy children and you can have a brilliant relationship with them. I love that. And that's such an important distinction between what you called parallel parenting and co-parenting. And sometimes the mutual decision-making around co-parenting just isn't possible. So I really just love all your advice, Karen, and I really appreciate you coming on. And I just have time for a couple more questions. So before I ask my final questions, I almost just want to hear your like, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here because I want to hear your like hopeful advice for like the brokenhearted and hopeless. So like if there's like a listener who's just like they're in it, you know, they're they're going through these papers and they're feeling dejected and hopeless. What is the light at the end of the tunnel? I believe I live and I have seen hundreds of clients who enter divorce devastated and thinking this is the end of any joy or happiness in their lives. And then they do the work that we're talking about. They roll their sleeves up. They go through our 12-step program or they do one-on-one coaching. They keep the focus on themselves. They heal their wounds. They refine their shortcomings. And I just had a fellow say to me, I never thought I would say this, this miserable year and a half is the best thing that ever happened to me. And I am so excited about the human being that I am and about what's ahead of me. And in fact, one of our series within Journey Beyond Divorce is called Voices of Celebration. And we interview former clients who say, this was my fears, this was my situation, this was my hot mess. And look at where I am now. And I would say 98% of the people that we work with who stick with the work uh, emerge with that perspective. And that doesn't mean that life is a cakewalk. It just isn't. I believe that whatever we learn and however we grow, we are then faced with the next mountain that's a little higher and we're well equipped and we're going to grow and learn. And then there'll be the next that is a little higher and we're well equipped. I love that. And it's so true that so many crises in our lives end up being wake up calls, Mm -hmm. right? Like I want to wish like something like cancer onto anybody, but I know many people that have gone through intense physical challenges and coming out of it with just this huge appreciation on life. Right. And so too, you know, that divorce is also that wake up call and people are entering into a new phase of freedom in their life, one where they're more recovered and healthy and than they have been before. Many, many find their next chapter is their best chapter. That's so wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Karen McMahon, for coming on to the show. And I have to finish by asking you the same question I ask all of my guests, which is what do you wish everyone knew about love? Gosh, that love all by itself is not enough. And that the work that you do from the time you fall in love and through the difficult times 
is what grows depth and value and quality of relationship with that person you love. Wonderful sentiment. Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate all your lovely advice and your hopeful wisdom for anyone going through this incredibly challenging time in their life. No one wanted it, this aspect of divorce, but it can be a wake-up call for healing and growth. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you and perhaps work with you, how can they find you? Uh, Journey Beyond Divorce is our website and our podcast. And we offer a free rapid relief call, a free one-hour coaching session to anybody who reaches out so you can see if the support we offer it works for you. And so you can go to our website and book that call right at the top of the homepage. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Karen, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the important and valuable lessons we learned today, including a wonderful way to prevent yourself from going on the path of divorce is to create a safe place for a strong, intimate, and vulnerable communication to happen. But if you do end up on this road, be sure to replace condemnation with self-compassion. Be sure to remember the three steps of awareness, acceptance, and action. And don't forget that healthy relationships require healthy boundaries, including the relationships we have with ourselves. So if you yourself are a people-pleasing perfectionist, then setting appropriate and healthy boundaries for yourself is a wonderful way to step out of that paradigm. And sometimes we have to shift from co-parenting to parallel parenting. And kids are smart. And if you lay down the rules in your household, then they'll understand and follow them. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Karen. Thanks, Zach. This was great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.